I don't want to be a martyr. Nor I. I want to live. That is good. For believing what you do, we confer upon you a rare gift these days. A martyr's death. The cross commands you. The blood of the martyrs commands you. I wrote them down in my diary so that I wouldn't have to remember. All right, it's the one you have all been waiting for. Simply because it's the one most of you would actually know. So because you all probably know the story even better than I do, I'm not going to go crazy giving you every single detail. But we do have to talk about Reformation Europe. Simply because I, I like doing two things with this little mini podcast that we have here. The first thing I like doing is giving you some of the stories of the martyrs of long ago. People you didn't know, details you didn't know, you know, people that have been lost to history, unfortunately. The other thing, though is the actual historical situations, the actual presentations of history, thinking through the history of our world. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ruin you guys today, all right? Reformation Europe. If you were not alive during the 1960s, but your information about the 1960s in the United States is gleaned from pop culture and references of people who live there, if the 1960s had a theological basis the way you think about them, they would be Reformation Europe. It's a melting pot of ideas. There are challenges. People are thinking through things. There's a conflagration of hatred and protection. There's power struggles over religion. There's power struggles using religion. So depending on where you were, your area noble, your prince, duke, whatever title he happened to have that year— he could be seeking to throw off the authority of the Catholic Church because he thinks it's an illegitimate authority because he has been convinced of Scripture that there is a better way to do things. He could also be seeking to overthrow the authority of the Catholic Church simply because that will make him more money. <laughs> now, either way, if you're a reform-minded pastor or bishop, that is an ally. Conversely, you would have people holding the Roman Catholic theological line simply because it upheld their political power, as well as people holding the theological line because they were theologically convinced. And all of these forces are at work at the same time. Now, because that is what is going on, you have both positive and negative outcomes galore. I mean, one of the positive outcomes is the open debate of theology, the open thought processes around theology. The concept of religious freedom is a Reformation concept. It didn't exist in Christendom. It doesn't really exist in any other human culture outside of Christian-informed Western civilization. Depending on how you look at the world— you see a rejection of authority. Now, in the moment, that might be good. You're rejecting improper religious authority. You're rejecting improperly grounded religious authority. But at the same time, <coughs> excuse me, you are sowing the seeds for the rejection of authority carte blanche, so to speak. So when you get to the modern world and you have a postmodern world set that has rejected modernity based upon its foundations in the Enlightenment, what you are really seeing is the illegitimate children of the Reformation and its undoing of unquestioned authority coming home to roost, growing up to full flower, as it were. So 
That's the world that you're actually looking at when you see the Reformation world. There is a political, geographic, as well as theological component to everything that is going on. And if you try to think through the events of that time period without understanding all of that, <laughs> you're going to struggle. So with that said, let's talk briefly about one of the most brilliant people you'll ever meet. William Tyndale, English scholar and theologian. You want to talk about not fair in life? Dude was fluent in seven languages. Seven. I, I didn't write them all down because I thought I could do this by memory. So what? French, English, Hebrew, Greek, Latin, Spanish, and German. So basically, wherever he went on the continent, however it was written, he could converse and dialogue with people in that language. So if he was in France, whether he was in Germany, whether he was writing scholarly papers, he could write in Latin, he could write in Greek, he could read and speak Hebrew. He's just a dude. Now, depending on who you ask will also depend on his theological basis. but it does appear as though Tyndale, based on where he grew up near the Welsh border, was influenced by our old friends, the Lollards. The reason why we say that is he has a lot of Lollard Theology. He denounced the praying to saints. He denounced the need of clergy for Bible interpretation. That's a that's a big Reformation and Lollard position. That no 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 no. I don't have to go to the priest and I don't have to go to the Pope. I can go to Scripture, the great call of the Reformation, Adventus, to the sources. In other words, we go and we read and we debate and we understand these things for ourselves. Now Tyndale is a scholar. He is moving through, gets himself a pile of degrees, begins studying theology, and at some point, post all of his studies, he becomes the tutor for a noble family. So depending on who you read, it's either the Walsh or Welch family. I don't think they make the grape juice, though. Now, what's noted about this family is they were renowned for their dinner parties. Household dinner parties on basically a nightly basis. You know, it's good to be rich in the Middle Ages, apparently. <laughs> now, with that, the issues of the day would always be a topic of discussion. Remember, there is no CNN, there's no Twitter, there's no Facebook. There's just what's come through the grapevine and what printings have been sent out. And realize that we're in the 15, early 1520s. The Reformation in Europe is in full swing. There have been revolutions in the Italian peninsula, there are wars and rumors of wars on the continent. So theology would become a major discussion, especially considering that the tutor for your family isn't just a ho-hum humanist, he's actually religiously and theologically trained. So Tyndale at these dinners was famous for disagreeing with theological positions based upon Scripture. And going to Scripture, because remember he can read a Latin Vulgate, he can read a Greek New Testament that Erasmus has published. He's famous for going at these dinners to the Scriptures and explaining the position that he holds from Scripture and convincing people. Now, that's going to get you on the Roman Catholic Church's naughty list post haste. So it is not long before Tyndale is accused, but not really anything ever coming of it. Apparently his, uh, his friends in high places helped him out a little there. In 1523, he moves towards London, and he asks permission to translate the Bible into English, which is flatly denied. 
Now, at some point in the next couple of years, Tyndale leaves England and lands at Wittenberg. Of course, Wittenberg is where Luther has set up shop. There is a college sprouting up there, and it is at Wittenberg that he begins his translation of the New Testament into English. Now, Tyndale's scriptural translations are very important in English because they are firsts in many respects. First on the printing press, first to use Hebrew and Greek and not be translations from Latin. Because always remember, this is part of the problem with the uh, Textus Receptus that the King James Bible hands us down in, is that Erasmus, who who accumulates the original Textus Receptus, only had seven manuscripts, and he didn't have complete manuscripts of every book of the New Testament. So there are sections of the Erasmus Textus Receptus that the King James and New King James used to translate that are translations into Greek from Latin. So he translates from the Vulgate and creates the Greek text, That's and they don't match what the Greek text would have been. Remember, uh, oh shoot, named Jerome translates the Latin Vulgate from the Greek and the Hebrew directly. Well, this is what Tyndale's doing. He's bypassing Latin, going from the Greek and the Hebrew. Again, printing press widely distributed. He eventually settles in Antwerp, and uh, copies of his tra- translation are distributed there. They get smuggled into England and Scotland, where they are promptly confiscated, and if they are confiscated, they are burned in public. Now, this is going on for several years before 1529. They finally get around to officially condemning Tyndale as a heretic. There's a problem with that. He's in Europe. He's not in England. He's down on the continent, specifically in Antwerp. Now, there is apparently request from Henry to the Holy Roman Emperor to have Tyndale arrested and handed over. There's some treaty of um, extradition that they have with each other, but there's not enough argument or case made to explain why, because Henry's problem is not theological, and he doesn't want to go with the theological angles, simply because that would give credence to Rome that Henry doesn't like giving, because Henry wants to be in charge. Remember that whole power struggle thing? So... Tyndale doesn't get arrested, and the main reason Henry wants Tyndale is not because of the English Bible, although that's part of it. That's what the bishops in the area would have wanted, but it's because Tyndale has been actually writing against Henry because Henry wants the pope to annul his marriage, and he wants the bishops to annul his marriage, and they don't want to do that because they want to get power from Henry that he doesn't want to give up, and Tyndale thinks this is all a scam and that none of this should be going on in the first place. So eventually— Spies from Henry are going to round up Tyndale and find him. He is seized in Antwerp, and he is extradited to England, where in 1536, he is convicted as a heretic. Now, what's interesting is Tyndale apparently began preaching and singing of psalms, and we've talked about this before, that part of the greatest testimonies of the martyrs is what they said and how they acted at their executions. So a system, especially because they've been burning so many people in England for the last 25, 30, well, actually this point, almost 40 years when you get to Tyndale, they've kind of come up with a nice system that one of the things that they would do is they would tie a rope, not just the gunpowder thing, but they would tie a rope around the neck of the uh, the heretic there, so that if you got to preaching too loudly or making too much of a ruckus and people started listening, they could pull on the rope and kind of strangle you a little bit so you'd shut up and then you could be quiet while you burn. Well, they had done this with Tyndale, but apparently Tyndale was... Um, was such a uh, powerful speaker and was rather determined fellow that they ended up strangling him before he could, you know, be burned to death. And of course, his his uh, famous last words is, "Lord, open the King of England's eyes," which is kind of an interesting prayer because they kill Tyndale in 1536, and power being what power is, 
1539, what's known as the Great Bible is translated. And what's interesting about the Great Bible, it is the first authorized English translation of the Bible that borrowed almost exclusively and very, very heavily from the work of Tyndale. So one of the fun notes about Tyndale is he, he what Tyndale, Tyndale does in English, what he begins the process that the King James Bible will eventually solidify, which is what Luther's Bible did for German. What a lot of these translations did was it helped codify language in a way that wasn't done before. I told you guys when we went through Wycliffe that I think we have 11 or 13 spellings of Wycliffe's own name in his own handwriting. There was just no standardization. Printing brings you that standardization, especially printing something that everybody wants to read. And what's interesting is, again, Tyndale's, several of Tyndale's turns of phrase, things like my brother's keeper, come into English from his Bible translation. Now, you want to know what kind of guy he was and the kind of attitude you should have if you want to follow in his footsteps? I defy the Pope and all of his laws, and if God spares my life, ere many years, I will cause the boy that drives the plow to know more of the Scripture than you and the Pope. That was one of Tyndale's quotes at the famed dinner parties when arguing about scripture. That's the testimony we should have, Christian. Adventus, anchored to the sources, anchored to the scripture, regardless of what the world may try to take, because we know that our hope is not found in this world, but our hope is found in Christ and in his power and in his resurrection. And until we meet again, read your Bible. It'll do you good. Bye.